Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing Today's Spirit in Action program will be in two parts, both with renowned and award-winning journalist Reese Ehrlich, known for his first-hand analysis and reporting from many corners of the globe with special study of the on-the-ground reality in the Middle East. Reese dispels misinformation and tells it straight. Reese spoke recently in the Twin Cities, Minnesota, hosted by FNVW, Friends for a Nonviolent World, on the topic Arab Spring in Egypt, Bahrain, and Syria. We'll start off with that speech, then we'll get Reese Ehrlich on the phone with some follow up. Get ready for no nonsense, truly spin free testimony about the continuing saga of the Arab Spring including the best hopes for good outcomes in those areas. I have been, in the last 18 months, doing a lot of coverage in the Middle East, going left to right. I was in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Gaza, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and then Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. And most of the coverage in Iraq and Turkey was about interviewing Syrian refugees, free Syrian army fighters, and various others involved in the opposition to Assad. Tonight I'd like to talk about Libya and Syria and leave plenty of time for questions because I know that's the most interesting part for me of these kind of talks. I got to Syria after Gaddafi had been overthrown and supposedly the West had won, the people of Libya had liberated themselves from the horrible dictator and basically Libya had dropped out of the news. The official story, if you listen to the Obama administration or the New York Times or any of the people acting as a transmission belt for the people in power, the people of Libya rose up against a hated dictator, Muammar Gaddafi. The fighting went on and then it reached a critical point because the people of Benghazi were going to be slaughtered. There was going to be genocide, a humanitarian catastrophe. And if you go back to the time, as I did, you can find statements by the opposition leader, the head of their opposition coalition, saying 500,000 people would be killed in Benghazi if the West didn't do something. Well, 500,000 turned out to be half the population of Benghazi. And while, yes, there was an attack pending, and yes, there would have certainly have been civilian deaths, there was no way that there was anything close to 500,000 people were going to be killed. How do I know this? Because I went back and I interviewed people in Benghazi, and I interviewed the fighters, and they maybe with a little bit of braggadocio, said, well, we would have fought them off completely. But there's no way that the kind of slaughter that the West claimed, it was the excuse. It was the Tonkin Gulf, you know, made-up story about it that got us into the Vietnam War. It was the medical students in Grenada that were under threat. You know, every time the U.S. intervenes somewhere, there's some excuse that makes it absolutely essential to do it because lives are going to be lost except for the fact that it's not true. And that was the case in Benghazi. It was way exaggerated. 
but the French, first the French and then the U.S. came in and the U.N. resolution in the case of Libya was a very limited resolution that said the U.N. could take action to prevent a humanitarian crisis. There was nothing in there that the U.S. could become the Air Force for the Libyan opposition, which is what it took. Because the next seven months, the U.S. then proceeded to kill a lot of civilians, spend a lot of money. They claim they only spent, a, this is a sign of the times, we only spent a billion dollars in Libya, which is a lie because what they did is they defined the money spent in a very, very narrow way having to do with the immediate bombs and bullets and guns that they use. It didn't count all the troops and destroyers that were off the shore. It didn't count the radar. You know, basically, it was a multi-multi-billion dollar operation. And they also claimed no, it was a great success because no Americans died. Well, there were special ops people. There were British and U.S. intelligence, CIA, on the ground. We know that for a fact because they were bombing targets in Libya. And how do you, you can't take some tailor or taxi driver who's Libyan and train him overnight to be a spotter for this kind of artillery and missile fire, etc. They had American troops on the ground. They just weren't acknowledged. And, of course, they're not going to acknowledge any deaths either. So the supposedly clean, less costly war for humanitarian reasons that's the, uh, Obama's administration's version of what a great success Iraq was going to be and what a great success Afghanistan was under Bush. So, you know, when the Republicans invade and occupy countries, that's for our national interests, parenthesis, oil. When the Democrats invade and occupy countries, that's for human rights. But as far as the people on the ground are concerned, it doesn't look a whole lot different. You know, it's the same missiles and airplanes and troops and machine guns that both sides use. They just, it's the justification that's different. So the myth in Washington, and I would dare to argue probably for most people in the country, is that Libya was a great success. Not because the people of Libya particularly benefited, but because it was done so cheaply and without American deaths, allegedly. That defines success. The reality is that today, Libya it has a prime minister. There were elections, there is a parliament, there's a prime minister, but the real power in the country are the militias. These were the militias that were armed by the United States, and to some extent Qatar and uh, France and other countries, and never gave up their arms. And they're aligning themselves with political parties, so that you'll have warlord situations it's either there or in the process of forming, depending on the party and the part of the country. And there is no functioning national army of police. When I was there, a dissident militia group took over the Tripoli airport. Tripoli is the largest city. It's their main international airport because one of their people had been arrested by another militia. So they seized the airport in order to get their guy freed. Now, what did the government do? Did the government call out the police? Did they call out the army? No, because they haven't got any. They called out their militias. And their militias went out to either fight it out or negotiate with the militia who had taken over. Now, luckily, in that particular case, one militia negotiated with the other, and they pulled out, and the guy was freed, and it was solved without gunshot. But another time I was there, there was a similar dispute between a militia that felt it hadn't gotten paid enough by the government, and they besieged the prime minister's office. And when they didn't get what they wanted, they just started shooting up the prime minister's office with machine guns. Again, it was a big international incident at the time. You probably, you may or may not have read about it at the time, but it's kind of faded from view. And if this was an anti-U.S. government in power, it would be called a failed state. But since it's pro-U.S., it's an emerging democracy. So you have to understand, you have to understand these distinctions if you're in Washington. The next time we heard anything about Libya was after the horrific attack in Benghazi, where the U.S. ambassador was killed. 
the debate in the U.S. media and the debate in the U.S. government was, was this a spontaneous attack as a result of this racist anti-Arab video that was produced in L.A. and was on the Internet? You remember that one? And therefore people got mad and they attacked the uh, consulate in Benghazi. Or was this a terrorist attack? Right? Remember that debate? And you were a dove if you thought it was spontaneous, and you were a hawk if you thought it was a terrorist attack. Now, what do we mean by a terrorist attack? Well, obviously, people came and they shot up the embassy. That's not in dispute. But what that really means is this was some kind of a part of an international conspiracy by al-Qaeda or other unknown terrorists, and that the Obama administration had really underestimated and hadn't provided enough security, blah, blah. That's kind of a hardline Republican view, and some Democrats, but mostly from the Republicans. The reality is very, very different. Because, first of all, there was never any evidence made available to show that this was anything other than a local attack. This was not planned by anybody in Pakistan, or the closest they have is after the event took place. There was a phone call, allegedly, to someone in the Al-Qaeda of the, of the Maghreb, which is a group operating out of Algeria and that part of the North Africa. And for all we know, it was like, hey, we did it, guys, you know. But there was no indication that there was pre-planning or anything else by some other groups. Everybody acknowledges it was done by Libyan militias. What came out in the process of these congressional hearings and other accusations back and forth is that in the consulate, three quarters of the diplomatic personnel in the U.S. consulate in Benghazi were CIA. Three quarters. Now, what do consulates usually do? Consulates, they stamp. You want to be a tourist? Sure. I would suggest San Francisco and New York if you've got time. Stamp. Oh, you want to invest in business? Sure. Here, here's a brochure. That's what consulates do. But if three quarters of your people are CIA, that should tell you something. And what they were really doing, and this is my best informed speculation, as it were, the CIA was negotiating with the various militias, trying to win some over to our side, trying to isolate the ones that we don't like. And they ticked off one of the militias or one or more of the militias. And they opportunistically took advantage of the situation to attack them. Now, you, know, you notice that nobody's been apprehended for this. And the guy who was the head of the militia that the U.S. accuses of leading the attack was having coffee in Benghazi and was interviewed by a New York Times reporter. So this should tell you something that... If, in fact, and I, I don't know this for a fact, but if, in fact, this guy or his militia was responsible for the killing of a U.S. ambassador, you'd think the U.S. would go after him. But the situation is so dicey for the U.S. in Libya that even in the face of a murder of an ambassador, you can't go after certain militias because that would be too destabilizing and the U.S. would be even worse situation. So I don't think any way you look at it, that defines victory. The U.S. has, as a result of its actions, created a failed state and the people of Libya are very glad to see that Gaddafi is gone. It's not like they liked him. It's not like I thought he was some kind of a great democratic leader or anything else. He was a force for stability that he imposed with an iron fist. And he was massively corrupt, massively corrupt. But by intervening militarily in a situation where the people were rising up, albeit with difficulty, against their own leader, the U.S. introduced a new dynamic that made the situation much, much worse. Okay, Syria. We're seeing a similar situation developing in Syria. I've had a chance, I've been to Syria five times, and I interviewed Assad twice. My most recent trip was after the uprising, it was at the end of 2011, so it was after the uprising, but before the armed groups had become as much of a force as they are. And since then, I went back to, the, to Antakya, Turkey, which is in the southern part of Turkey, more or less on a straight line with Aleppo. So it's right at the border. So a lot of Syrians come back and forth. 
and I was also up in Iraqi Kurdistan where the Kurdish forces are crossing back and forth into Syria. So uh, Syria has become extremely complicated and I want to try to sketch out my views of what's happening there. The uprising in Syria, like everywhere, like Egypt, like Tunisia, etc., began as a spontaneous uprising of people without a particular religious or political agenda. They wanted an end to the dictatorship. Now, it was not a Gandhian-style strategic nonviolent movement. It never was. The people, when the, from the very beginning, when the police fired tear gas or came in to beat up crowds, people threw rocks. They fought back. So it was not a Gandhian movement. But neither was it armed struggle. It was basically unarmed people marching very bravely in peaceful demonstrations out into the streets, often leaving from the mosques, starting on Fridays, who confronted horrific force by the Assad government. And they defended themselves when they, when they could. That movement lasted for roughly 10 months. And the Assad government brutally repressed its own people. Some on the left like to argue that Assad was some kind of an anti-imperialist and a bulwark against Western influence, etc., etc. I think they're sadly mistaken. Assad was a dictator to his own people. He had a, a, a working accommodation with the Israeli government that was a peaceful border along the Golan. He had done nothing to retrieve the Golan from the Israelis. And the reforms that he made had nothing to do with bringing more people and having more representation from the people or giving justice to the Kurds. But he did implement neoliberal reforms. In other words, he took state-owned industries and privatized them to his cronies. So they developed a cell phone industry in Syria. Now pretty much everybody's got cell phones, cell phone stores all over, all over the place. The owner is his cousin, just one typical example. So ironically, the one set of reforms that he actually did push through were very much in keeping with the kind of privatization, breaking unions, neoliberal policies that the U.S. and the IMF and the World Bank push all over the world. It's one of the reasons in the very beginning of the uprising that the U.S. and Israel, by the way, were very reluctant to support the opposition because they knew Assad. That was the devil they knew. And they didn't trust the uprising because they were afraid more militant forces might come to power. And that is the irony of all of the Arab Springs, which is that if you had governments that were genuinely representative of the people, if you could somehow wave a magic wand and you had free press and parliamentary, fair parliamentary elections and all the other things that we you know, attribute to a parliamentary system, and it actually represented the people, they would be really anti-U.S. <laughs> they would be really pro-Palestinian. They would want the Golan back in the case of Syria. They would want nationalized health care. They would want all the things that the U.S. is opposed to. So when the U.S. and various others claim to be in support of all of these uprisings and claim to be for democracy, they don't really mean it. They want strong men loyal to them to be in power. They're not really interested in popular movements expressing their will in the region. So the popular movement developed in Syria. At the same time, Assad did have a certain amount of popular support. I wrote some articles for the Christian Science Monitor. You can see them on my webpage. Especially in the beginning, roughly the first six months, the businessmen still supported him because he had done a lot of good things for wealthy businessmen. And some of that had trickled down to other businessmen. Although there was a split, the kind of bizarre merchants and the smaller business people were already, even at that time, opposed to Assad. Some of the Christians, some of the Shia Muslims, and the Alawites, you know, the Alawites is a separate religion that's many centuries back a split off from Shia Islam, and the Assad family are Alawites. But basically, the, religion, the, the large majority are Sunni Muslims in Syria. But the other minority religions were worried 
because a combination of the Assad government spreading a lot of propaganda that if these Muslim extremists come to power, you're, you're dead meat. And some extremists in the opposition. So there was this Saudi cleric who was broadcasting on satellite TV. He came into Syria and he put forward the slogan, Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the Tabut, which means to the coffin. So the idea is you're going to get rid of or kill all the minorities in Syria. And that obviously didn't go over real well. It also didn't represent the views of the opposition. But just like in this country, you can find a few extremists who are saying anything and suddenly blow up out of proportion. And pretty soon you've got one ethnic minority or religious group worried about what's the other really up to and so on. So Assad was quite skilled at doing this. And as the battle went on, and I write about him in my book, Conversations with Terrorists, he was a secular dictator, and he is a secular dictator. That is, he's not, he wasn't ruling on religious grounds. He was a pan-Arabist. He came from his dad, and he came from the old school of 50s and 60s Arab leaders who were dictators, but they were not basing their rule on religion. But as the battle wore on, he could see that the Sunni Muslims were turning against him and the Alawites and the Shias and the Christians were backing him and he played the religion card and he played the ethnic card. And people turned with unable to develop, there were no serious splits within the Syrian military and people turned to, to armed struggle. So opposition groups took up arms and other powers started getting involved. So I just came back from Saudi Arabia. The Saudis are sending fighters into Syria. The Turks are taking former military people, training them or putting them into special camps at least, and then sending them back in to fight in Syria. Qatar is funding some. The U.S. is supposedly giving non-lethal aid, and the Europeans are supposedly giving non-lethal aid. What does non-lethal aid consist of, according to the Europeans? Oh, armored vehicles, <laughs> bulletproof vests, helmets. Now. If Iran was sending that to Syria or to Afghanistan or someplace, would we consider that non-lethal aid? I don't think so. And besides which, the U.S. is lying through its teeth anyway, because what they're really doing is the CIA is along the border vetting various guerrilla groups. If they make the cut, then they tip off the Saudis and the folks from Qatar to, okay, you can, it's okay to give these guys arms. So the U.S. is arming it. They're just not doing it directly. It's through the back door. Uh, U.S. policy. The U.S., according to Republicans, and back to the hawk versus dub thing, the Obama administration has just been diddling around. They don't have a policy in Syria. We should be arming the uprising. We should be sending up a no-fly zone. and We could have knocked Assad out of power months ago. Well, that might be true. And then, and then what? And the Obama administration are certainly no doves. They're smart enough to know that you've got these competing factions. Who do you arm? You say, yeah, arm the rebels. Who do you arm? Because there, are, there has been a development of this extremist trend. A quick footnote here. Sometimes we use the term Islamists or jihadis or whatever. There are people who use Islam, who have ultra-right-wing policies using the cover Islam to put themselves in power. That's who those folks are. And they make no mistake about it. The, the Muslim Brotherhood is right of center. Groups like al-Nusra and other extremist groups are ultra-right. They're not leftists. They're not anti-imperialists. They are right-wingers who are based among Muslim capitalists. That's their base of support on all kinds of issues from women to human rights to trade unions, you name it. They have right-of-center views. 
In fact, they line up much more closely with right-wing evangelical Christians in this country than they do with anybody else. So make no mistake about it that these folks are right-wingers. And you've got right-wingers and then ultra-right-wingers and then out to lunch completely wacko (laughs) right-wingers, if I may. And then, of course, there are people, those are not the only folks in Syria. You've got secular and leftist people who are involved. They're simply not as strong as the conservative forces. So the Obama administration was smart enough to know that to overtly supply arms or set up a no-fly zone could get the U.S. involved in yet another third war in the area. Despite what they say publicly, they know that Libya is a disaster and they could see another one coming in Syria. But that doesn't mean they're doing nothing or that they're, you know, what they are doing is arming the opposition by covert means. And I had a really fascinating conversation in Istanbul, Turkey, with the uh, leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is probably the strongest of the various factions. What they told me, what they've said to others, and I think is accurate, I think they would be willing to participate in a parliamentary system and extend basic democratic rights to all Syrians in the sense of having a relatively free press, free campaigns for elections, that that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean a democracy. And it means that they would want, of course, to be in power. But that's a big difference from the ultra-right-wingers who say we need a caliphate where we're in power. No elections, no parliament, no free press, etc. So that's an important distinction. And I asked this guy from the Muslim Brotherhood, I said, why hasn't the U.S. intervened so far? What's his view? And he says, oh, because they haven't found the right leader to back. What the U.S. is waiting for is a Karzai or an Al-Maliki that they can say, aha, here is the new knight in shining armor. He supports free market policies and he won't be too nasty to Israel and blah, 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 blah. And now we can finally intervene if they have some confidence that this guy is going to take power or people around him, etc. They haven't found that. And they're actually having a very hard time because there's not a lot of Syrians with any popular base who actually believe that. So the fighting goes on. What are some possible outcomes in Syria? Anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen, they're blowing hot air, they're blowing smoke, because it's extremely complicated. And the nature of the struggle has changed a lot since the opening months. And it's continuing to change all the time. You have all these outside powers, each trying to back groups that they like. I would say the best possible outcome would be a defeat of Assad, some kind of a split in the military where you don't have the general seizing power, but they're willing to stay around and provide some kind of stability. The Muslim Brotherhood and the secular forces and others organize. They have something approaching fair parliamentary elections. And that the differences, the very real differences that exist between the secularists, the leftists, the right-wing and the ultra-right-wing Muslim forces can be resolved without shooting each other without assassinations, without bombings, et cetera, et cetera. If that kind of a government could be established, it would be a huge step forward because it then allows some room for the secular forces to organize. And we've seen in Tunisia and Egypt, there are trade unions. There is a small but active left in the Arab Spring. They need room to organize because they're just, oh, they've been crushed by the dictators in their countries and then slapped upside the head by these conservative Muslim forces. So they need time to organize and, and build a base. So the option number one would be the most favorable for stability in the country, for a general well-being of all Syrians and a, and a chance for people to organize. Another option could be where the Muslim Brotherhood and the more right-wing forces kind of coalesce. They have a parliament, but there's not any genuine civil liberties and human rights. So the press is dominated by the parties in power. 
the security forces uh, have a heavy hand, whether it be the army and the secret service, et cetera, et cetera. And you have a conservative, but possibly pro-U.S. or at least willing to agree with the U.S. on certain policies, that they would be in power. And then the third option and the least desirable would be a failed state where the militias continue to fight each other even after the government falls and they can't agree amongst themselves. You have a great deal of instability and the more li greater likelihood of foreign intervention, particularly from Israel. So I think those are the three possibilities. I can't tell you which one is going to be. Maybe you kind of bring me back next year if the war is still going. I am writing a new book on Syria, so I'll be happy to come back and share my conclusions based on the future developments uh, when, when that book comes out. But just a final word. Everybody had very high hopes for the Arab Spring when it took off, you know, because in Tunisia, the government fell very fast. In Egypt, the government fell very fast. And then suddenly we all, it seemed like they were in Jordan and Syria and even in, in the Palestinians, they were demonstrating not against the government, but for unity of Hamas and the West Bank leadership of Fatah. You know, so there were really very exciting times and a great deal of hope. And I've talked to people and some people, oh, my God, look at all of the killing and the mayhem and look what's, what's going to happen in Syria. But, you know, look back at what happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when there were anti-colonial struggles and anti-imperialist struggles. Remember the old French Empire and the British Empire were collapsing. You know, you had some countries that had really positive steps forward. You think of Algeria and Tunisia. You know, in Tunisia, in 1958, they passed a women's rights law that, among other things, legalized abortion for women at a time in the United States when it was illegal. You know, so the Tunisians were way ahead of us in women's rights, at least in terms of what it was written in their laws. So, you know, there were lots of positive examples, ultimately South Africa and so on. But there was also horrible failures. You know, in some cases, the anti-imperialist leaders like in the Belgian Congo was assassinated and a horrible dictator stepped in and there was run as a dictatorship. Nigeria was a military dictatorship. You know, so there are lots of newly independent countries that had failures that didn't live up to the anti-colonial hopes that people had. But nobody suggests today that we have to go back to the colonial system, that the Belgians should go back running Congo, however bad the Congo is. They're way better off than when the Belgians were running, and so on. And I think that's what ultimately what history is going to say about the Arab uprisings. We don't exa know exactly how they're going to turn out, what every country is going to look like, but we're going to look back at this as a historic epic in which changes, and it set the basis for positive change throughout the region. Thank you all very much. You were just listening to a presentation by award-winning journalist Rhys Ehrlich on the topic Arab Spring in Egypt, Bahrain, and Syria, hosted by the Friends for a Nonviolent World in the Twin Cities. I'll get Rhys on the phone for follow-up in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you that this is Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, for this Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where you can listen to and download almost eight years of our broadcasts. You can also find links to our guests, like to Reese Ehrlich, at reeserlich.com. There's also a place on nordenspiritradio.org to post comments, and we'd love to hear from you. Please do go to nordenspiritradio.org, post a comment. And while you're there, consider giving a donation. We need your help to keep this service going. We also want to encourage you to support your local community radio station, a very important function. It's news and music that you get nowhere else. So please do make a donation to help support your local community radio station. Again, this is Spirit in Action. Right now we're going to go to the phones to speak with Reese Ehrlich, author of, among other books, Conversations with Terrorists. Reese, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. 
Uh, my pleasure to be here. When do you have time to go over to Syria and to all the places around the Middle East, considering what your talking and writing schedule is like? Well, it sounds like, or it may appear from the outside, that I'm just running around madly from country to country and, and never time to be home with my wife. But the reality is I make these trips for one, two, maybe three weeks at a time. I come home, I write for several weeks, and then work on a longer project. I'm working on a book on Syria, and then I go back again. So. Actually, as reporting goes, it's not a terribly hectic schedule. I usually go to a country, do the interviews, write some of the stories, finish them up when I come back, and uh, then I get a little time off. There's a lot that you said in your presentation you gave to the Friends for Nonviolent World that I'd like to follow up on, but there's also just a whole lot of general questions I have about what the mission of your work is. I mean, maybe it's to get a paycheck, or maybe there's something larger than that. Could you talk about what the overall idea is? Well, you know, I got into journalism. I was an anti-Vietnam War activist and a anti-draft activist and supporter of civil rights and so on. And Abby Hoffman once famously said that we organize demonstrations and then write about them. So that's how I got my start in journalism. It wasn't exactly balanced mainstream journalism, so-called objective and so on. But I learned a lot from that, and I learned the importance of actually looking into the best arguments of the other side, as well as uh, whatever particular views I have. But I think my current mission, if you would, is to shine lights on parts of U.S. foreign policy that don't normally get illuminated, interview and talk to people who don't normally get quoted, um, represent the views of ordinary people in a lot of these conflicts around the world. You can read the New York Times or watch the TV networks to find out what the elite and the top political and economic and business people think. But all too often you don't hear what ordinary people think, and that's what, I, what I'd like to do. I guess right in line with that, I was wondering what you think is the view that's propagated by our media. Some people, you know, the lamestream, mainstream media, the the left-wing media, the right-wing media, people have different ideations about what it is. How do you see media as functioning currently? Well, obviously you have to make a big distinction between popular media and the mainstream media, or whatever term you want to use to call them. You know, people like the New York Times and Washington Post, CNN, AP, etc., are corporate entities whose purpose is to make money. They are very much subject. They both promote the views that come out of Washington and New York and are subject to pressure from the military, the politicians, the economic elite, and so on. And so you get a very narrow perspective on what's going on in the world if that's all you read. Thanks to the Internet, but even before that, there's lots of alternative media, but there's lots of foreign media where you can get a very different perspective. Even things like BBC or The Guardian in Britain, they are mainstream media for their country, but because they're not part of the American empire, they're part of the British empire, they have a different perspective on things, for example, going on in the Middle East. Similarly, there's alternative media in the U.S., everything from indie media to a host of websites and aggregators and so on. So it's possible with some work to triangulate and figure out by reading a number of different sources, the mainstream media, the foreign media, and the alternative media, to kind of figure out what's really going on. And then I like to do things, I like to get out and report events firsthand so that there's not reported by the mainstream media and usually out of the ability of alternative media to cover because it's too difficult or expensive or whatever. And that's where I kind of fit in. 
Do you think that there's been a change in journalistic standards since, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, Walter Cronkite times to today? Or is it just a change in the times that's happened as well? You know, I, I actually am friends, or was friends with Walter Cronkite. We worked together on about five projects, and I had a chance to chat with him, you know, about the old days. And there, I think it's a myth, frankly. And let's take the 50s and 60s. There were far fewer media. There were three national television networks, two wire services, and they pretty much went in lockstep. You look at the coverage of the coup against the Shah, I'm sorry, it, that brought the Shah to power in 1953 against the democratic government in Iran. You look at the beginnings of the Vietnam War. Pretty much any U.S. military adventure abroad was widely supported in the media. And actually, it was more difficult to get out of an alternative view because there were fewer media willing to criticize the U.S. government. But somehow that's been turned into the golden age of American media. And it's true, there wasn't as much celebrity coverage, or at least it was isolated to like movie fan magazines. It wasn't mainstream news to figure out who was sleeping with who and who was uh, having a mental breakdown this week in uh, Hollywood. You know, so there's a lot more tabloid-style news that's made it into the mainstream media. But that's a, kind of a secondary factor. The main problem with the media, the distortion of coverage of labor, of people of color, of gays, of women, of what's going on with wars abroad, all of that I don't think has fundamentally changed. We tend to forget that Walter Cronkite was a supporter of the Vietnam War right up until the Tet Offensive. And when he made his famous commentary on CBS, he didn't say the war is lost or the U.S. has to pull out of Vietnam. He said it seems to be a stalemate in a quagmire, which was probably accurate at the time and, and had a huge impact. But it was not some kind of radical statement against the Vietnam War. When I spoke with him later in life, he wishes he had said more against the war earlier. But he was pretty much captured by the same thinking in Washington and New York that uh, everybody else was at that time. In some ways, because there's more diversity of views and ability to get out views in quicker time today, I think this is a very exciting time in terms of media. One of the things that I've been impressed by when I've heard you speak is you don't allow for many sacred cows. You can say, yeah, the liberals, they're looking like this, and they've got this dirt on their nose, and the conservatives have this, and they've got their head in this place where the sun don't shine. You seem to be an equal opportunity truth seeker. And when you talk about shining light on, is it also uh, you know, some kind of a pursuit of truth specifically? Yeah, to the extent that I can, I let let the chips fall where they may. You know, a lot of people, including myself, voted for Obama because we thought the Republican alternative was a disaster. But that doesn't mean you look uncritically, therefore, at what Obama is doing. I mean, basically, Obama's foreign policy is a continuation of what Bush was doing in his second term. Not the first term, when the neocons were in power, but the second term, when the so-called realists were doing. So uh, Obama has actually expanded the drone attacks. He continues all the repressive policies from Guantanamo, keeping it open to asserting the right to torture. The CIA can torture, not the Army. The right to kill American citizens anywhere in the world if they're declared an enemy combatant. All this bogus stuff that completely violates the Constitution that people were outraged when Bush was doing it, Obama is continuing. So, yeah, when the liberals engage in war and illegal and unconstitutional activities, they have to be as criticized as heavily, if not more so, than the conservatives. In your talk that you gave at the Friends for Nonviolent World presentation, 
One of the things you said is one of the parties over in the Middle East, I don't remember if it was in Syria or whether it was in Libya, that that party was more or less equivalent of evangelical Christians or maybe fundamentalist evangelical Christians in this country. Obviously, we've seen the rise of the evangelical right in this country over the last 30 years. Has it been a similar growth in those countries? A lot of them were secular democracies at one point. Yeah, I think the the analogy I make, uh, because I think a lot of people in the U.S. are not familiar with Islam, so we get a lot of propaganda about, you know, Muslim fundamentalists and terrorists and equating all of Islam with terrorism or the myths that the Shia and Sunni have been fighting each other for centuries and therefore what, what can we do when we get involved in these places and there's just all these age-old conflicts that are rising to the surface and blah, blah, blah. This is all the logic of people who have managed to muck up and interfere with and, and destroy lives and cultures in the Middle East and now the result is a disaster and so you have to come up with some kind of an excuse to justify it. What I was saying was that a good way to think about Islamic movements is the same way you would think about Christian movements. In Europe, South America, you have Christian Democrats. Christian Democrats are generally allied with the Vatican. They carry out the social policies and hold the social views of the, of the Catholic Church. You have evangelical Christians who believe deeply in God but have a social mission. Uh, you have evangelical Christians who are extreme right-wingers. And you have some who kill abortion doctors, who engage in terrorist activities. Islam is no different. It's all done in the name of Islam, but just because somebody kills an abortion doctor in the name of Jesus doesn't make him a Christian. And someone who blows up civilians in the name of Islam is, is not a Muslim. So I think that's the point I was making about the role. And on a political level, conservative Islamists have much more in common with conservative Christians than they do with secular forces. So if you kind of scratch away some of the rhetoric, look at the attitudes towards women, which is basically their rights should be limited. They should not have the right to abortion. There should be limits or controls on divorce and child custody and so on. If you look at the role of who should run the society, Islamic capitalists, that's what these conservative Muslims believe, and Christian capitalists are on the other side. In other words, you go down a whole series of lists of political stands, they actually have a lot in common. One of the points that you mentioned uh, in previous question, I think it was, you mentioned about Guantanamo, that essentially Obama has continued the previous policies about Guantanamo. I find that to be true also, and it's been something I've been critical about. But I also, in doing some checking, I finally found a case where President Obama made the comment that, you know, he really wants to close it down, but that they're not letting him. They can't, in order to close Guantanamo, you have to relocate things somewhere else. Have you heard this from the inside? Have you heard politicians talking clearly about this? It doesn't seem to get the front pages in any case. No, I, I think that's true. I think you remember uh, his first day in office, President Obama signed a paper that it was going to close Guantanamo, and then there was an immediate reaction from the right-wing Republicans who basically never accepted his election in the first place, who then threatened legislation to uh, bar people from Guantanamo to be held in the United States, and basically the Obama administration backed down. But you learn a lot about a president, whether it's Bush or Clinton or Obama, by the issues they're willing to really fight hard on. You know, the easy issues don't tell you much, the ones where they can get passed with relative ease. But obviously, on the case of health care, Obama went to the mat on that, and it was a very close fight and a very close vote and a Supreme Court decision, and et cetera, et cetera. But 
he came out triumphant by basically placing all his bets and pushing and pulling out all the stops to make that happen. He didn't do that with Guantanamo. They made a decision that it wasn't worth it, that the principle involved here was not worth a big fight, and I think that was a mistake. Uh, and it tells you a lot about what his weak commitment to civil liberties is. I'm particularly interested in religious and spiritual issues as relates to whatever's going on in the world. And obviously in the Middle East, there's a significant element of that. One of the things that you talked about in terms of the dictators in the region, like Assad, for instance, is a secular dictator as opposed to a religious dictator like maybe Iran has. So my question is, from your perspective, what you've seen in the world, what's your perspective on whether a religious or a secular dictator is better or worse? You know, a dictator is a dictator, man. Whether you do it in the name of Christianity or you do it in the name of uh, Islam or you do it in the name of some kind of secular principles, a dictator is a dictator. I think what Assad, you have to understand why when the Arab Spring broke out in 2011, Assad confidently predicted that there would be no uprising in his country because he was a staunch opponent of Israel and supporter of the Palestinians and he was a pan-Arabist and a nationalist and his country was going to be immune from Arab Spring uprisings like at that point had happened in Tunisia and Egypt. Well, how wrong can you be? <laughs> this country has been in at war for two years now. The particularities of the dictatorships, depending on how they operated, might determine how difficult it is to overthrow them. So I've talked to Iranian people opposed to the Iranian government, and especially in the 80s, from 79 through the 80s, it was really hard to oppose the clerics because they had not only the traditional tools of a dictatorship, you know, repression and jail and torture, etc., but they had the ideological backing of the Islamic clerics who basically made it a sin to oppose the government. They didn't use that terminology. But it, ideologically, it was very difficult to organize people during that period. Now, that has changed, and particularly in 2009 when there were massive demonstrations, there were breakthroughs against the clerics and the, the military and the intelligence services that run that country. But when you know push comes to shove, the dictatorship of a Mubarak, of a Khamenei in Iran, Assad in Syria are no different. The point you make, though, about the tools that you have, I guess whenever you got the mass populace from the pulpit or from a significant place of influence in this society able to push people in a certain direction, I guess you're saying that it does enhance the power of the dictatorship. Sure, and the, the dictatorship will always, a secular dictator will always try to get religion on his side if he can. Look at the current controversy about the Pope. And he's from Argentina. There was a dirty war. It was a coup by the generals. Argentina ran a horrible right-wing dictatorship, torturing people, drugging them and shoving them out of planes, kidnapping their kids and raising them as their own. I mean, just horrible human rights crimes. Where was the Catholic Church? Most of the bishops supported the dictatorship. They had close ties with the military. And the dictatorship, in turn, could claim Catholicism as an ideological backstop. You know, this is all very well documented. So even secular dictators or people kind of mildly involved in religion, if you will, will use religion if they think it's helpful. One of the things that you mentioned along the way, talking about Syria, even though their protests started out peaceful, they responded with rock throwing to tear gas. So it wasn't a Gandhian form of nonviolence, is what you said. 
I interviewed someone a year or two ago, also happened to present at Friends for Nonviolent World, Afra Jalabi, and her uncle, she's from Syria, her uncle is one of the proponents of nonviolent, and I think actually Gandhian nonviolence, and he's been one to interpret it for that society. How much did those elements present themselves? Was it just a minor part of the resistance movement there, or what did you see on the ground? I didn't see any signs of that, of, of a Gandhian-style nonviolent movement. I have tremendous respect for people who can have that kind of discipline and are able to actually organize people along those lines, but it also runs counter to much of the common thinking, certainly in the Middle East, I would argue, in much of the world, which is most people are perfectly happy to start off in a peaceful march or demonstration or rally, and if it's not attacked, they keep it peaceful. But if they're attacked, most people are going to try to defend themselves if they're able to. And I, I make no claim to have done like widespread survey or talked to a lot of people. I just simply, of the people I talked to involved in the opposition, both Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamic forces, as well as the kind of secular and left and progressive people who were active at that time, I didn't know anybody who was committed to a Gandhian style of nonviolent tactics. Can we talk a little bit, Reese, about your views, your opinions here? You were opposed to Vietnam War. Did you file as a CO back then? Were you on that side of the thing, or was it just the specific war? It was better than that. I, I volunteered to go and help organize soldiers against the Vietnam War. And for some reason, they rejected me. It was a very famous case. We set up a picket line. I was called down to the induction center. This was 1968. At that time, I hadn't even turned 21 yet. We set up a picket line and a rally, and I went in and uh, was interviewed by the news media, by phone, from inside the induction center. It was front-page news in the San Francisco Chronicle. They decided they didn't want me to go in to the military. I was a, a leader of the Vietnam War, anti-Vietnam War and anti-draft movement at that time, and the military was having enough problems as it was. And I continued. I served my country nobly during the, the war period by opposing the war. What did that grow out of? I mean, I think you mentioned in your talk the whole way that they manufactured a reason why we had to go into Vietnam. Was it because this stuff was all crooked from behind the scenes, or are there higher moral imperatives that you're following? Well, remember that the revelations about Tonkin Gulf not really being an attack on U.S. warships didn't come out until the Pentagon Papers, and that was many years later. So at the time, in the 60s, certainly as best as I can remember it, People accepted that there had been some kind of an incident, but that it would have been then overplayed by the U.S., and it was not an excuse to go to war. Only later did we find out that the whole thing had been made up. It was a combination of a moral imperative and a political imperative. Morally, what the U.S. was doing in Vietnam was, in my view, no different than what was happening with Jim Crow segregation in the South, which was happening to women, and so on. And then politically, it was part of a much wider movement that was developing uh, in the 60s that I was very excited about and very young and very naive and very committed all at the same time. It was a wonderful era. And did that come out of some part of your background where you just raised in a liberal family or a religious family? Yeah, or a... No, it wasn't, it wasn't a religious decision at all. I was raised Jewish and was bar mitzvahed and confirmed. And by 1967, when the Israeli Arab War broke out, I had my first break with Zionism. I said, this is not right. And, of course, it freaked out my parents and the rabbi. And the rabbi took me for counseling. And <laughs> it didn't do any good. And this was a major leading liberal rabbi in L.A. at the time. So 
it wasn't a religious-based opposition. It was political and what, humanist moral ob- objections. Does that mean you do or don't continue to practice your Jewish... No, I've been atheist since shortly after my bar mitzvah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I, 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 just, I, I haven't believed in God for a long time. I have tremendous respect in those people who do believe in God, who then carry out teachings to help the poor, to oppose war, you know, who carry out the teachings of their religion in a way that adheres to the original tenets of that religion, which I believe is at their core is peace. I have nothing but disgust for those who use religion and their belief in God to justify war and oppression. So when you go over to the Middle East, I mean, majority Muslim, obviously there, I guess you don't carry a badge saying you're Jewish or were Jewish. Number one, do you find problems with rejection? Obviously, there's a lot of people who maybe for some very just reasons have a hate on towards Israel. Do you find sources there that you can trust or not trust? Or does this religious mix there make most people very not very trustworthy, too biased? You no, know, it's interesting. Most of the time, people don't even ask. It's not even an issue. Uh, it's a much bigger deal than I'm an American, and I'm an American reporter, and they people make certain assumptions based on that. If they're in government or business leaders, they assume that as an American reporter, I must share the foreign policy views of the United States. If they're ordinary people, they have the same assumption, and I can explain fairly briefly that I don't support Obama's policies or Bush's, depending on you know what era we're talking about. And they're presently surprised. In fact, they want to get into a discussion about, well, why is the U.S. always supporting Israel? Or why did the U.S. invade Iraq and so on? And they actually open up to me because they would love the American people to hear what their views are. Speaking of talking to folks over there, Conversations with Terrorists. That's a nice provocative name. I congratulate you on picking that up. How many Americans have threatened to stone you or burn you (laughs) at the stake or whatever because you're talking to terrorists? Isn't that beyond the pale? Well, I think... (laughs) None to my knowledge. The book is an ironic title because when you read the chapters, actually none of the people, possibly with one exception, well, actually none of the people are currently terrorists, and you could argue whether they were ever terrorists. But I include some kind of usual subjects like Khalid Mashal, who's the head of Hamas, who certainly has been accused of engaging in and supporting assassinations and blowing up of civilians and so on. I also include Gula Cohen, who, whose name may not be familiar with your listeners, but she's very well known in Israel. She was a member of Lehi, or the Stern Gang, in the period prior to the 1948 formation of Israel. And they engaged, openly engaged in terrorist activities, including blowing up Arab civilians and committing massacres at Deir Yassin and a bunch of other things like that, not to mention killing British soldiers and diplomats. And she continued uh, to be a supporter of the, right-wing, the ultra-right-wing settlers movement in the 70s and and onwards, you can make an argument that she's a terrorist, but nobody, of course, in Israel, or certainly not in the United States, would accuse any Israeli leader of being a terrorist. That's beyond the pale, because the whole definition of what's a terrorist has become convoluted, and basically today in the United States, it means if you use violence and oppose the United States, you're a terrorist. If you use violence and support U.S. goals, well, then you're a freedom fighter. That's the functioning definition. One of the things I'm curious about, Reese, is having had a ringside seat in all of these countries and, and, you know, 
some wars that look a little bit more noble in their outcome or their intent. Uh, you made a comment about World War Two that that probably would be one you could fight for, you know. Scott Simon, who was Quaker, or maybe still is Quaker, I'm not sure, he created a little bit of a stir in the late 90s, early 2000s, when he declared that he was no longer so clear that uh, no wars were good, that what he saw happen in Yugoslavia convinced him that, you know, sometimes you got to go in there with the bombs or the guns or whatever. So have your views changed about war because of the ringside seat you've had? Actually, no. This is something I've been pretty consistently looking at since uh, at least I was a teenager. I've never been a pacifist. I believe that there are circumstances in which it's legitimate for a country to defend itself just as it is for an individual. World War II was an example of that. I would not cite Yugoslavia, which was basically a war by imperial powers to divvy up Yugoslavia for their own interests, which then the subsequent violence was used by opportunist leaders on all sides to create horrible war crimes, etc. But you notice, we don't hear a lot about it, but there's still U.S. troops stationed in the Balkans and in uh, Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, and they're probably going to be there permanently. So what kind of a great peace and solution is that, if not one done for the imperial powers? But I think World War II was different, and if we want to discuss that at greater length, we could, but had I been alive and of uh, fighting age at the, uh, during World War II, I certainly would have fought there, although not necessarily agreeing with every decision made by the U.S. military or political leaders, but on the whole, it was a just war. So you've got an awful lot of good writings out there, including conversations with terrorists. What's on the horizon for you? Well, I'm currently researching a book on Syria. Hopefully, we'll be out next year, depending a lot on what actually goes on in Syria. It's very hard to write about stuff uh, as history is being made, but I'm researching the history of Syria, looking at the various groups fighting Assad, the kinds of people supporting Assad, and the book will hopefully be out next year. So for you listeners out there, if you want to follow up on Reese Ehrlich, you can go to his website. It is reeseehrlich.com. Pretty simple if you know how to spell Ehrlich. You can also follow the link from org. In any case, he's got some words of wisdom, some valuable insights from the streets of the Middle East, and I guess from those in America, too. Reese, your talk was great. Any talk I've heard you give was great. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.